This episode of The Adventure Jogger brought to you by Dave Meath, Matthew Queer, William Jarrah, Steve Henley, and shout out to Lori in Canada and all of you listening right now. I first met Brian Carlisle at the Savage Golf Races this uh, this spring, and we had a chance to chat just a little bit, told a great story about running his first ultra with Andy Jones Wilkins, but I would find out that Brian had a much deeper story than just that. Brian, as a kid, got really into motocross racing. It was actually pretty decent. It defined his life. It was the thing he identified as, a motocross racer. Well, an accident nearly took his life and took the love of his life away from him. He could no longer do the thing he loved so much. How do you deal with a loss like that? And then, of course, he would find a new love, a new challenge in trail and ultra running. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Brian Carlisle. The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Adventure Jogger, and we're like 115, it depends when I release this, we're in the 110s episodes, and so a lot of stories have been shared by people about how they found the sport of ultra running, and each one is unique and awesome in its own way. The guest I have for you tonight, their journey to find trail and ultra running Started with motocross, you throw a near-death experience in there, next thing you know, you've got a trail runner from Haddonfield, New Jersey, Brian Carlisle, is on the Adventure Jogger. Welcome, Brian. Thanks, Ryan. Appreciate the time, and thanks for having me. Now, we actually met. If, if, if people are keeping track of all the guests we've had on the Jogger, you've been on for a couple minutes before. You were at the Savage Golf Marathon, and you got to be on the Live from Stafford's Camper uh, Savage Golf episode. Yeah, that's correct. It was uh, quite the adventure. Um, uh, everything you'd wish for in terms of a trail race, great adventure. Re- really glad I went. I will say that is remote Tennessee. <laughs> Uh, you are far from civilization and stuff in general, but, yeah. uh, you know, that's what we want sometimes, right? Well, yeah. I mean, you got the experience, you know, you're a Jersey guy, you know, you had to probably, yeah. and you said you're near Philadelphia, right? Yeah. Right outside of Philly, about six miles by the way, the crow flies. So you're like right on the border there. And so you probably had to hop in the, in the airport in Philly. You, 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 you land in Nashville and you're like, oh, well, this isn't bad because you land in Nashville yeah. and you're like, oh, well, this is so, this is, wow. There's a lot of country yeah. singers, a lot of rhinestones. And then you drive about two hours to the east and you're like, oh, I, I don't see any more country singers and the rhinestones are gone. <laughs> yeah. And at some point we were like, probably should have hit that grocery store 30 miles back because uh, it might be a while, but um no, yeah, that was an adventure. We landed in Nashville on, uh, it was actually St. Patty's day. Yeah. So got it, got a chance to go out and get a couple of beverages with the wives. It was myself and, and two other buddies and, and our wives all came. So it, it was an awesome weekend. We had a blast. Um, quite the adventure. Did you get a chance to go into Jeff Stafford's camper? I didn't get to go into the camper. I did uh, talk to Jeff outside of the camper briefly. You should have gone in. You should have insisted yeah. to go into. The, he's very proud of his camper. You're just not allowed to poop in it. That's his thing. Like he, <laughs> well, that's the whole reason for having it. I mean, you know, what else do you? I mean, you can live a few days without a shower, but you know. So, so just this is going out there to everybody. If yeah. we are doing a live from Stafford's camper episode, and you manage to not only get into Stafford's camper but crap in his camper. If you can prove that, you get a free adventure jogger shirt of your choosing. So I'm Well just- listen, if we go back to Savage Golf next year, I'm just gonna run in there and run into the bathroom and lock the door before you can do anything. Um, yeah, that was fun. I mean, it actually reminded me of my early days growing up racing motocross because you know, for events like that, you're in a rural part of whatever state that you're in. 
And from the age of seven, my family always had some type of RV. Uh, they weren't very nice, um, but uh, they would survive the weekend. And uh, yeah, that was that was kind of life growing up. So it uh, wasn't very uh, much of a foreign experience to me in that regard. Well, let's let's start. Let's 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 get going here. Seven years old, you get into the world of motocross, and and I'm always interested that when someone finds a sport like that that young, how did you get? into the world of motocross at age seven? Yeah, good question. I mean, I actually got a PW50 for my seventh birthday, uh, which is in May. Mm-hmm. So, um, and my first race was like, you know, a week or two later. Um, my brother actually got into the sport a handful of months prior to me. And he found the sport uh, via Travis Pastrana, who's a fairly a household name at this point with uh, the Nitro Circus and the mm-hmm. X Games and things like yeah. that. Um, but Travis grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, where I grew up. And um, it was through him and his family that we found the sport. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of how the whole thing got started. It, um, you know, it's kind of hard to remember back exactly what <laughs> motivated us to try a sport that was that. You know, because you think about it, it was 1990 at the time. Right. And um, was not a mainstream sport. I remember even, like, all throughout elementary and middle, middle school telling my friends, that I raced motocross on the weekends. Nobody really knew what that was. Um, but uh, yeah, we found it and it was, it was awesome. The only thing they knew about motocross was the old Nintendo game, Excite Bike. Remember yes. that? <laughs> oh, of course I remember Excite Bike. Are you kidding me? That was fantastic. I mean, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah Brian's, Brian's full of shit. He says he's motocrossing the weekend. He's just playing Excite Bike in his room. Yeah, <laughs> I did play a lot of Excite Bike. I'm not going to lie. So, One of, probably the best Nintendo game, but again, I have a bias. Yeah, a little bit. So you get this 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 motorbike, this little tiny motorbike. You start doing this motocross. You're going over jumps. You're in the you're in the dirt. And as a seven year old, that is heaven because you don't you don't think about oh shit, this could hurt if I fall off of this. Yeah. This is just I'm going faster than I probably should on dirt. I'm jumping and flying. At seven years old, you've got to be just loving life riding that little motorbike around. I mean, a hundred percent. And let's let's be honest. At seven, you're going so slow that, like, you know, a lot of the parents could jog next to <laughs> their rider. My dad never did. He was always the one that would stand and watch from afar. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, you're going slow enough to where if you fall, you'd really just tip over, right? And you get back up and you and you keep going. <laughs> But in terms of loving life, I remember, you know, the the weekends where you'd get like a ton of rain and, you know, they, they would cancel the race on the account of bad weather. You know, me and my buddies would go out and just go sliding down the hills of the track. It would be covered in mud head to toe yeah. by the end of it. And like that's a seven year old's dream is just spending time playing in the dirt. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, those, those were some really fond memories growing up as a child at, at the uh, motocross track every weekend. Little did that little boy know as he was sliding down that mud that someday the older version of him would pay money to do that. Yeah, it's actually, you know what, um, th- this, my last race was a month ago. I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit, Ryan, but the Dirty German, mm-hmm. which is in Pennypack Park in North Philly, um, it was mud up to your ankles. And I haven't been that muddy since my motocross days. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that was something I tried to remind myself all throughout the race was that like, hey, I used to enjoy this. So try to get into that mindset. Right, right. This is this is a good time when I was a kid. So y- you you do well at this. This motocross thing is not just the folly of a seven-year-old, and then all of a sudden you move on to something else. Oh, oh, look, there's dinosaurs, and you've moved on. You continue to progress through this, and as you get older, the motorcycles get bigger, get faster. You continue to do motocross for an awful long time, don't you? Yeah, so I I raced for about 12 12 years Mm -hmm. all through high school, and you know, starting off at the age of seven, it wasn't really until I got to – um, you know, freshman year of high school where we started going to, you know, races where you're competing on a national level. And, and by that point, I would say living in Annapolis, Maryland, we would go as far north as upstate New York, as far west as Illinois and as far south as Florida. OK, so, you know, that those are some decent hours in the RV. Um, and, you know, you also get to the point where you're going fast enough and competing at a high enough intensity where some of the you know crashes can be more intense and and so starts your frequency of trips to the orthopedic doctor 
Um, ironically, my, uh, my first, uh, injury where I had to go to the ER, I was in Gainesville, Florida, and I'll, I'll tie back to this later, Ryan, but, uh, I was in Gainesville, Florida at the winter Olympics, which is one of the ma- one of the bigger amateur national events and going into the first turn, uh, with, without getting too deep in the weeds, I, I crashed and I dislocated my shoulder mm. And I, I had to go to the ER. I spent the next four or five hours with my shoulder out of joint until they could uh, reduce it. So that was the first of many shoulder dislocations. But yeah, once you start going that fast, I mean, I would say once every year, maybe twice every year, I was either dislocating a shoulder, breaking a bone or something like that. So um, the running joke among, amongst my friends in high school was that I, I must not be that good at this because I'm always getting injured. Um, and, uh, you know, which there's probably a little bit of truth to that. Well, when you're 17, Brian, you know, 17 year old boys are immortal in their minds. There's nothing bad that can happen to them at all. You know, there's you can go as fast as you want. You, you don't even think about the possibility of serious injury or even death. Was there a moment when you're doing that motocross and you'd had those 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 injuries before and you've dislocated this and broken that? But was there before we get to your big moment? Did you see one of your fellow racers? Was there was there an injury that made you almost go like, "Whoa, this is a little crazy"? Um, not not in that instance. I will say that like the last two years I was racing. Um, in 98, I went to the amateur nationals, which I actually happens to be in Tennessee, about 40 miles west of Nashville. Yeah. Um, I went again two years later in 2000. And the, the thing, it wasn't, it wasn't um, concern about how serious the injuries could be. It was more frustration of, you know, you're ramping up, you're having a good year, and then you get hurt and you're down for at least six weeks, sometimes three months, you know, if you have to have surgery or depending on the injury. And it was really frustration more than anything that was starting to wear on me as I got, you know, later in the years of high school. But, you know, to your point, you know, 17 years old, graduate high school. Um, I, I did well in high school. I went to a, a nice school. It was a, a private school in Annapolis, Maryland, and, and I did well. Um, didn't even think about applying to colleges. I wanted to keep racing motocross. Um, knew I was never going to make a career out of it. I could have gone pro and, and attended some pro races. Not that I would have made very much money, um, but that's all I wanted to do. I wanted to, I wanted to get my pro card and I wanted to qualify for a race was my goal. Um, And I would say leading up to my my main turning point, it was really just frustration that was starting to make me, you know, think twice more than anything. Okay. So, you know, you punch through it. This is your thing. I'm like, your, your friends are applying for college. You're like college. Guess what, buddy? (laughs) You're gonna have a poster of me on your wall, jumping some sweet jump on my on my motocross bike, and then disaster strikes. Yeah, it was uh, the day was actually September sixteenth, two thousand one. Um, I don't remember waking up that morning. Um, you know, and I, I can only tell you what happened based on you know third hand account, what my parents told me, things of that nature. But um, it was practice the morning of the race, so. You know, the, the way the format goes is, you know, you usually have two races, uh, you call them motos, so two motos for each class, uh, maybe like six or seven laps. Um, but there you do a practice, you know, in the morning just to get to know the track, whatever. And so there was a jump on uh, the track that um, was a 70 foot, 75 foot uphill double jump. And it, I'll just give you the hand motion, right? So you can see it's it's this long, like, ski jump going okay. up this hill. Yeah. And then it went flat, and then it went up over here. And it was about 70, 70 feet. And when you would land, so you'd come up yeah. over where you'd have a short landing area, then you go back up another big jump. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I had this thing down. I've done it. I've done this jump 100 times. And um, what apparently happened is my throttle stuck going up the face of this jump. So if you can imagine – on it was on a 250 cc bike um and the way you would do this jump is you would be you come out of the turn in second gear you're wide open in third gear and about 10 feet before the lip of the jump you would shut the throttle off and coast that last 10 feet so you wouldn't far over jump it so imagine if your throttle sucks you jump way past it uh which is what happened to me i landed on the face of the third jump Uh, my hands came off the handlebars and um, I just went like kind of flying off of that third jump. So I know that's kind of a a hard way to describe it, but um, 
when I was told and I got to meet the paramedics at the, that were at the track that day, a month or two later, and what they told me was um, my mouth was already blue when they got to me because I wasn't breathing. So, um, you know, long story short, they get to me, I'm not breathing. They revive me. Um, they take me via four wheeler on a stretcher um, through some rough terrain over to where they landed a helicopter in the field. And according to my dad, they had to stop several times to get me breathing again. Um, so, wow. Uh, yeah, it was it was a tough day. Yeah. <laughs> but they they medevaced me to uh, the lo- the closest trauma center where I spent the next 11 days. Um, and I just had a ton of injuries, um, uh, bruised kidney, bruised lung. I had an air pocket in my lung, a lacerated spleen, which they had to repair surgically. Um, I had a left side bleed. Uh, I had a bleed in my brain of about five millimeters, um, a left side brain injury and a broken pelvis. Um, so, so that was, uh, that was a tough one. And, um, I remember, I don't remember being in the trauma center. There's 11 days. I do remember being in the rehab hospital after that. And I remember kind of being relatively coherent and my, it was, it was first semester of college. And so I was, I was going to the community college, um, again, no big college yeah. plans, but I, I did put in 11 solid days of work at the community college. <laughs> and I remember being really pissed off that my mom withdrew me from my classes. Um, so, um, um, you know, you're kind of, you're, you're in the, you're in the trauma center and uh, you're getting all this bad news and, you know, they're giving you the prognosis and, um, it was, it was more frustrating than anything. I was, I, if I, um, if I wasn't, weren't so frustrated with the constant injuries, I, I probably would have gone back to the sport, but, you know, as I was kind of like taking my time to recover, I got to thinking to myself, I mean, the I get, I get hurt, not that bad, but I was always getting hurt, you know, once or twice a year. I'm like, I'm never going to graduate college if I, if I don't like give this up. And so right. I, I quit cold Turkey and, um, and shifted the focus to college, which was, which was easy to do in the moment when I was still frustrated and a little bit pissed off with, yeah. with everything. But, um, but that was really hard for like the next year just to deal with that because it was such a big part of my life. And then, in an instant, it was gone. How do you at 17, Brian, process the fact that you weren't breathing for a good period of time? Um, you know, you had to be revived. Your lips were blue. I mean, there was an oxygen going to your brain. And you have this massive amount of time, 11 days or more, where you have no memory of anything that you did or anything that happened to you in that time. How did you process that as a 17-year-old kid? Yeah, I mean, I think as a 17-year-old, you probably just deny it, dismiss it, or just downplay it, mm-hmm. you know, because it's hard to to wrap your arms around it. I remember at one point, like, you know, one of my memories later in the, in the hospital stay was, um, you know, going, you know, to the bathroom and seeing this, like, you know, wound in my groin area. And I'm, I'm like, hey, guys, what's this? And uh, they're like, oh, we laparoscopically repaired your spleen. I'm like, oh, and they're like, yeah, we did that five days ago. So it was, you know, as I was learning about all of this, um, you know, it's a lot to process, but um, you're really in denial at that point. And and more than anything, I I was just so frustrated to be back, you know, injured again. Right. I mean, it's kind of like one of those things where I was having a great year that year. Um, I was feeling really good heading into the fall. I broke my arm earlier that year in March and knocked myself out actually as well. Um, But that was the frustrating thing. Frustrating thing was, you know, you keep getting back and like every six, eight months, you know, getting back and you're starting to do well and your your results are starting to show. And then you get another major, major injury. But I can tell you the one thing about having a head injury of that nature, which they don't call it a concussion when you get a head injury like that. They, They were calling it a brain injury. Yeah. And the best way to describe how how you react going through something like that is is you are a very grumpy individual. <laughs> yeah. So when I my the teenage version of me was very hard headed. God bless my mother for putting up with me. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, after going through that injury, I was sleeping a lot, you know, as my body was recovering and I was one grumpy individual. So, you know, if you think about it, I knew it was the time to give it up. Um, obviously it was, you know, now I have this huge void in my life and in, in general, you're just kind of a a frustrated person. So it was, it was really hard to process. And, um, you know, the other thing about it is when you have no memory of the incident, 
like you really don't know what happened. You just right. know what people told you. And I remember the first time we went back to the track, you know, maybe two months after the injury, seeing my friends are at the track and they're like, you know, saying, Oh my God, you know, we're so glad you're okay. Everybody was so, you know, worried. And, you know, I remember I met the paramedics that day, like I told you, and I was wearing a Navy blue shirt. And the one EMT told me, he's like, when we got to your mouth was the color of that shirt. And I looked down at my shirt and I'm like, Oh, wow. wow. This, this guy remembers it vividly. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot to process. And quite frankly, it's probably a little bit easier for me to process it simply because I had so much memory loss. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you don't have like, you don't have memory of the actual trauma itself. Right. You just know that it happened. So, but a big chunk of you, I'm sure, you know, you start this at seven, you're, you're racing for, you know, years, a big part of you identified Brian Carlisle as the, the motocross guy. That was your identity for, I'm sure, a huge chunk for the majority of your life at that point. And, and now you had that taken away from you. You're no longer Brian Carlisle, the, the, the motocross kid. You're the kid that had a traumatic brain injury that almost died. And you had that taken away from you. So what do you do then? When you've decided, like, okay, I can't put my parents through this, I can't put myself through this, it's over. Yes, yeah, so good question, Ryan. So, I mean, for me, you know, it was very clear, you know, at this point, I'm, you know, in my first semester of college, which I got zero credits for because I withdrew from my classes. So, you know, it's kind of like shake the dust off, get up and, and go enroll in classes for uh, the spring. And so, actually, I remember... Uh, that spring semester, I only took three classes because I wanted to kind of ease back in. And I took uh, chemistry, um, uh, calculus and English or something like that. I remember when I got a B in calculus, my mom at that point was actually like convinced that I was probably okay uh, after the brain injury. (laughs) But, um, you know, I I knew that I had to, um, that I needed to go to college. I wanted to go to college all along. It was just never a priority. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I'm like, all right, well, let's let's place a priority on college, you know. So now you start thinking at the age of 18, you know, when I should have been thinking about this three years prior, you know, um, maybe I should apply to schools. And oh, by the way, all the scholarships, you know, I should have been working on that two years ago. So right. I got to figure that out. They're all gone at this uh, point. Yeah. A hundred percent. And so I, I paid for it all myself, you know, the American way by taking out loans. <laughs> but uh, um, that's really where I put my focus. And, and originally I... Um, I wanted to go into physical therapy. And so I started like looking at and taking some of the prereqs for physical therapy. And I would say, you know, that second semester, really my first full semester, um, I quickly got focused on, on orthopedics. And so, um, you know, growing up racing motocross, I mean, the, the, the orthopedic surgeon that I saw all throughout high school was a friend of the family. He operated on me twice. I mean, he set many bones. And so as a, as a, as a motocross racer, you kind of become like an amateur orthopedist of sorts. Only, only a 15 year old orthopedic or only a 15 year old motocross racer would know that if you fracture your navicular, that's a really tough fracture because the navicular has poor blood supply. It doesn't (laughs) heal well. Right. So, um, and I'm like, all right, well, you know, I, I did fairly well in high school. You know, I, I was uh, consider myself a smart individual. So I decided to put all of my energy and competitive drive into school and started focusing on getting into medical school um, and uh, which is a really hard pathway. But um, it at least gave me an outlet for my competitive drive yeah. and an area uh, to focus on. So you go to medical school, you decide, you know what? I'm going to learn how to do the things that have been done to me so many times. How does, how does medical school go for you? That's a big, that's a huge commitment. You go through your normal four years of college and then you've got to add on to that. I know my my daughter, by the way, my oldest is uh, finishing her last year in college and is going to go, is trying to get into PT school. She's already got to start the applications to get into PT school. So we'll see how that goes. But so how did, how did college go for you? Did you get to, to medical school? College went really well. Um, I never knew that I could actually do that well in school, to be honest, until I was that motivated. I remember it was like my third semester of of uh, college and I was taking, you know, physics, um, you know, anatomy and, and some tough classes. And I brought home all A's. Yeah. And, you know, my mom looked at it and just like, who are you? And um, <laughs> I did that for seven straight semesters, which is how, you know, how competitive it is to get in the medical school. So I was feeling really good. I mean, I did really well. 
Um, I was the top um, graduating senior in my major. And um, uh, I was dead set on going. And I was also dead set, so dead set on going that I wanted to stay in the local area to where, you know, I was applying to George Washington and Georgetown and Hopkins in Maryland. And like, there are no gimme schools in that that (laughs) rotation. And um, I took the MCAT twice, which was a brutally uh, difficult test. And um, that was what taking the MCAT and everything like that. I, I could have still gotten into medical school for sure. Uh, but it just kind of like made me pause and think. And it was actually around that same time that two orthopedic surgeons who were friends of the family who were kind of coaching me through the undergrad process. Um, I remember one of them specifically told me, said, yeah, you know, uh, he casually mentioned this. He said, yeah, you know, if I could go back and do it all over again, I, I, I probably would do something different. I don't think I would be an orthopedic surgeon. Yeah. And I remember this like light bulb going off in my head. And it was kind of like, if you can envision, Ryan, you start to feel like the universe is telling you like, hey, like maybe maybe there's something else here that you should be thinking about. And it was my senior year at Towson. Um, you know, I was an exercise science major. Uh, getting a, a kinesiology degree and I had to do an internship and it was right around the same time that I learned about the orthopedic device industry. And so I started investigating it and I spent the last semester of my uh, college education, you know, dead focused on getting a job in the orthopedic device industry to satisfy my internship so I could graduate. Yeah. And, and that's really how it all got started. I, I graduated on a Saturday from Towson with my bachelor's degree, the following Monday, I was in the operating room at Anne Arundel Medical Center, and I saw, I think, eight total knee replacements that day Wow! Uh, in the operating room. And so um, that, that was it. I mean, after that, I was hooked. I mean, you're in the OR theater. You're, you're, you're really a part, an extended part of the surgical team. And um, the clinical part really drew me to it. Again, I had this passion for orthopedics and um, you know, just the way I grew up with my work ethic, I just feel like I, I found, you know, the, the best industry to be in. So, uh, yeah, the rest is history. I've been in orthopedic devices my entire career. Wow. It's orthopedic. You wouldn't even think like who would have thought seven year old gets a little motorcycle. You know, the, the path takes you to where you are. Uh, orthopedic devices which is yeah. something that I don't even think most kids would even think about when they're trying to figure out what they want to be with, uh, you know, when they get older. But you went far with that. Even you're you're the CEO of a company of an orthopedic device company. Yeah, correct. Um, I started in this role in uh, February. A great company. Ironically, back to Gainesville. So the company is headquartered just outside of Gainesville. Um, our technology was developed by Dr. Larry Hinch out of the University of Florida, and my predecessor actually founded the company in 2002. So, um, great technology, and, and just you know, the Cliff Notes version is we make a synthetic bone graft material um, using a material called bioactive glass, which you know, the best way to say it is it kind of supercharges the growth properties of the material. Yeah, but you could use it in everything from fractures to accelerate the healing process to fusions. Um, and it's a great technology, great company, um, and the future is very bright for us. But I remember going back to my motocross story, um, you know, I'm brand new in front of, you know, a new company that knows me somewhat because I was on their board of directors the year prior. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the first thing you want to do is, is earn some street cred. And um, so I tell them, I, you know, about my story and how I got interested in orthopedics. And I said, oh, by the way you know, this journey really started for me when I dislocated my shoulder at Gatorback Cycle Park, which is like five miles down the road yeah. from our factory outside of Gainesville. <laughs> what a crazy world. How it all ties in together. Did you, yeah, it did, certainly is. When you, became, when you get that title, chief executive officer, you know, that's, that's a big title to throw around. Um, did you, did you decide like, okay, I'm going to take a little take a little nod from Steve Jobs and wear the same thing to work every single day. I'm going to buy 40 <laughs> black shirts. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not that dogmatic. I will say my swim lane is somewhere between like ble- uh, blue and gray. You know? So <laughs> um, every now and then, like my wife would be like, Hey, what do you think of this pink shirt? And I'm like, mm, not so much. I'm like pretty, pretty conservative, yeah. you know, looking here. So, uh, so yeah, I, uh, I don't wear the same thing every day, but, uh, I will tell you, I am a huge believer in my routine. I, I keep a daily journal, which is part gratitude, part schedule. 
And there's a lot of things I do just to kind of have like a systematic process. I can tell you when I travel, I am an absolute machine in terms of how I do it. And that, that's really the only way you can travel as much as I do mm-hmm. uh, just by having, you know, uh, habits and systems for how you, you know, pack and, and, you know, travel and all of that stuff. But uh, yeah, I've never gone as far as Steve jobs. <laughs> well, that's a lot of, that's a, what an incredible story to get to where you started to where you are now. When does, here we are, half hour in, everybody. You've checked your watches. Going, they haven't talked about running yet. I told you we'd get to it. We did mention pooping in Stafford's campers, so that kind of counts. So when does running enter your life, Brian? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, um, you know, once the career got going, um, you know, it, it, it's very busy. I've been married for 10 years. Um, our oldest son is seven. Our youngest turns five mm-hmm. uh, in September, so... And by the way, I went back to grad school uh, while we were having children, which was probably not the best time to do it. But, you know, if you can imagine, like I I always had this void in my life of adventure. And it, it's funny, like when I was finishing grad school, my wife even told me, she's like, you need a hobby. And, and she was right. Um, all I did was work and, um, you know, try to, you know, maintain around the household, uh, which is what a lot of parents do, you know. But, um, I, I, you know, because of growing up racing motocross, I always had this you know, love of outdoor adventure. And, um, I remember I was at a birthday party, uh, here at a friend in town and, uh, my good friend, Justin Weathers, who you met at at the Savage Marathon. I remember we were chatting at this party and he's telling me he's, he's big in the trailer and he's been doing it longer than I. And I remember him telling me about these runs and just some about, I'm like, after like 20 minutes, I'm like, Justin, this sounds great. I'm like, I'm in, like, let's go. Right. And I the next week I bought a pair of Solomons and um, I'd always been running a fair amount. I was doing like 10 milers and, and, you know, 15 K's and stuff yeah. like that all on the road. I'd never run on the trails. And from the way he described it to me, it's, it's a little bit intimidating before you go do it. Right. You're like, Am I, what's my pace going to be here? And these guys would be way faster than me. Like right. all this stuff. Once you get in the trail running, you don't think about. Um, and so it was like, it was a Sunday and he sent me a message. He's like, Hey, let's go for a run. So we went uh, together to the Wissahickon state park in Philadelphia. And for those that live in the area know uh, what a great area the Wissahickon is for technical trails, uh, really good technical trails. You probably have, I don't know, I'd say about 25 miles of trails, but there's so many different loops you can do. Wow. Obviously no, no, uh, no elevation, um, not a lot of vert, but you just have really good rolling technical single yeah. track. And, um, we want to, we went on a seven mile run that day. And I remember Ryan, I mean, like seven miles was not, you know, out of the question for me at the time, not that I was this massive runner, but seven miles was, was not something I was concerned about. I remember by mile three, the blisters I had on both <laughs> of my feet and I didn't have any water on me like, or anything like that because I, I didn't know what to do. And so um, that, that's how it all started. Um, you know, we went on, we we started running together maybe once a week after that. And um, Justin convinced me to sign up for the Dirty German, which is a race here at Pennypack Park. I just did it again yeah. uh, last month. Um, and I did the 25K, which for me at the time was like a really big deal. I'm like oh, yeah. 15 miles in the woods. Like, this is no joke. <laughs> um, I, I did it. I carried a flip belt and I think I put like a gel on my flip belt. And off I went. So I, I had no idea how to fuel or, or any of that stuff. Um, but it was only a 25 K, but, um, but that was it. I had a blast and, um, you know, it was maybe like the next month, you know, we're like, Hey, let's pick another race. And, and, and Justin is, uh, a, a fly by the seat of his pants kind of person. And which is like the best kind of friend to yeah. have, by the way. Yeah. Uh, so I remember he's like trying to convince me to, sign up for this race in Montana. And I'm like, I'm like, I've just done one, man. Let's like pump the brakes here. <laughs> and I remember telling him, I'm like, well, like, well, I'm taking my family out to Park City in uh, July. I'm like, let me look and see what's out there. I'm like, oh, here's one. Uh, and I sent him a screenshot. And, you know, he literally is like, oh, let me hang on. Let me, I got to call call you back. My wife's beeping in. Uh, I'll let you know. And literally like 30 seconds later, he sends me a screenshot. He signed up for the race and it was the speed goat. So we went out to Snowbird and we did the speed go. That was my second race uh, last July. Was that your so was your first ultra? No, no, no. The, sorry, the Dirty German was your first. No, you did the twenty five k for the Dirty German. So this is your first ultra doing the speed goat. I didn't do the fifty k. I did the twenty eight k. Okay. I, I didn't quite have the gumption to uh, to bite off the fifty k for the speed goat. And 
my God, thank God I didn't. Um, because <laughs> that's a, that's a gnarly Carl Meltzer race. Um, and you get all you plan for there between elevation, rugged terrain. Uh, the, some of the climbs there are just like in, incredible, but, um, yeah, I did the 28 K took me five hours due to the, the nature of the terrain had massive issues with, you know, stomach issues and, and not eating well and, and everything. I, I did everything wrong, but, uh, I, you know, I was, I still loved it, even though I was suffering and struggling a bit, I still loved it and kept going. That's one of those races. Yeah. That I've, I've heard just the brutality of that course and how much Carl loves it. And I know a lot of people like to throw around hardest 50 K and that sort of thing. And I, I think you always have to throw the speed goat into that, into that conversation. Um, but cool. You, you get kind of, you know, you get beat up a little bit. You learn some yeah. lessons, but you don't give up. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I signed up for my first ultra. It, it was a month later in um, in uh, Pennsylvania. I did the Water Gap 50K, uh, which is the one we talked about at the Savage Golf mm-hmm. Marathon. And, and I, I didn't recognize him at the start line, but AJW towed the line and, and ran the race. And um and that was a great first race. Again, I had massive uh, fueling issues. Um, and I, that was the last race where I really struggled with that. But I, we were doing great up to mile 18. And then it was just like a bit of a suffer fest for me. Um, a lot of flat terrain, um, a lot of exposure. And so um, if you can imagine, you know, those last 10 miles were not a, a ton of fun, but I, I did finish. It was, it was a fun day. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, that was the first, uh, ultra. And I, I did beat AJW, not by a lot, but we did beat him. And, uh, and that was Justin's biggest fear. I mean, the whole time he was looking over his shoulder, like, is, is he catching us? Cause, cause I was walking a lot towards the end and Justin was like, kept on going, let's go, let's go, let's go. And it uh, turns out that was all because he was determined to beat AJW. Which, which Not by a lot, though. It was by very little. <laughs> I don't think – I think sometimes because Andy is such a character in the sport and he is one of those, you know, greatest ambassadors for trail and ultra running you could ever ask for. I mean, he lives and breathes the sport and his enthusiasm is infectious. I think sometimes people forget what a badass he was. Oh, yeah. You know, when you think about his second place finish at Western States where he's like 30 minutes behind Scott Jurek when Scott Jurek was dominating and some of the huge things that Andy Jones Wilkins has done, I think because he is such a character of the sport, I think sometimes people do forget the fact that there was a time when he would burn most everybody down. Yeah, 100%. I mean, he, he literally, he's, he's at a hip replacement, right? Right, so, exactly. Uh, you barely yeah. beat him and he's got a fake hip. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, like, listen, the, it was funny at the finish line. I told you this before, but we were looking for him because it was a, it was an out and back. So yeah. we we passed him early. He started at the front. We passed him like at mile like three. And then when we turned around, we obviously went past him. We're, we're like yelling. I'm like AJW, let's call Pluckleman at the finish. <laughs> and like he's like, oh yeah, no problem. And then like he came across the finish line. He got in his truck and he was gone. Um, he he had something to do that afternoon, but. Uh, it was cool seeing him there for sure. What have you found, you know, as you continue to progress in the trail and ultra running world, what what have you found in the community? Is there a similarity between the motocross and trail running community? Because you're not the first person to, to have a foot in both worlds. I know uh, Dr. Uh, Mueller from Appalachian State University we've had on a couple of times. I know he was in that world as well, kind of straddling the line. Are, are there similarities between the two? I think there are similarities in terms of what draw what draws people to the sport. I mean, the the way that I was competing in motocross, it was it was all competitive. Of course, you have like groups of friends and core friends growing up in the sport, but you know, a lot of times at you know weekend motocross, whether it was a regional event or whatever, you knew who your competition was, and you weren't being too chummy with them between the races. Um, I would say, you know, the thing I love about trail running is this close knit community and quite frankly, how approachable everybody is. And so, you know, a great example is, um, you know, before the speed goat, I'm, I'm, I, of course, you know, put a couple of questions in there and hit submit, you know, about eight stations. And like 30 minutes later, I get an email back from Carl Meltzer himself and I'm, and I, you, it's his Gmail and I look at him like, Oh, Oh, that's him. And so we changed, exchanged a bunch of emails and obviously I met him there at the race and, 
you know, like, like motocross is great. It's very family oriented, but the thing I love about trail running is, you know, I'm two months in three months into this sport. And one of the greatest legends ever is just so approachable and, and spending time talking with you. And even after that race, I remember emailing, him just saying, Hey, you know, love the race, love the event, looking to, you know, do another mountain type of race next summer, you know, combine it with the family vacation, which by the way, if you're like me and you have a wife and small children, you got to figure out a way for it to be a win for the, the wife. Right. And so we always try to plug one in that's in like a destination location. And so I reached out to him and he was giving me all kinds of tips about other 50 Ks and stuff to try uh, this summer, which, which didn't end up happening for a variety of reasons. But um, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's this community feel to trail running. That's just, that's just really awesome. And um, obviously people are competitive, but I would say, we're more competitive with ourselves than against the other person um, to where a stranger might hand you a gel on the side of a trail. Like, you know, in, in motocross, I would not hand a stranger a spark plug on the starting line. If they're plugged out, I'd be like, you know, Hey bud, sorry about your luck. You know, <laughs> should have been more prepared. Um, and uh, you know, maybe it's just cause I'm older too. And obviously I'm just doing this for fun, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing that, that, that was one of the things that really drew me into the sport. There's this, there's this authenticity to it and this natural draw amongst the people that just love, you know, being outdoors in nature and doing things and pushing yourselves in ways that, you know, prior to getting into the sport, I don't know if anybody would say like, Oh, I'm going to go run a hundred miles or 50 miles or whatever, but you get into the sport and then you start getting drawn to it. And that's, that's to me, the real win is, is continuing to push yourself and do things that you weren't able to do previously. Have you found that it's it's filled that hole for you? Yeah, hundred percent. Um, it, it really has. Um, it, it's also a great way to to burn calories throughout the week. So there's a side benefit to the health. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, I mean, it's 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 um, it's been a huge addition to my life, just on the personal side. Because for me, like I said before, it was all family and all professional and if you don't have that balance in your life, you're just not as good at the professional side and the family side. So for me, it's given me that balance. And, uh, you know, you go do a great trail run with some of your buddies on the weekend and there's just no better way to spend the weekend. Have you found ways to, to marry your professional life and your hobby? I mean, you are an orthopedic device company CEO, you know, it, you're working with, you know, replacing knees and fixing joints and all of that stuff. Has it changed the way you approach your job or do you find yourself looking at runners differently from the mindset of a guy who is in charge of a company that makes you know, <laughs> fake things to get people moving again? Yeah. I mean, I would say that um, it, it definitely has. I mean, I'd say the sport just shapes you in terms of, uh, you know, just giving you more resilience and, um, you know, even just a little bit more grit, which, you know, it's hard to sometimes, you know, depending on what industry you work in, apply that to the industry. But, you know, the industry I work in is brutally competitive and, you know, just having an overall mindset and a belief and, and just faith, quite frankly, that that you can achieve the things that your your organization is setting out to achieve, that you're leading the business to achieve. I think there's a lot of similarities to that you know, with, you know, running an ultra. So towing, you know, a 50 miler and a pouring down rain, you know, you kind of have to have that same type of mindset that like, okay, you know, I remember yelling it at the dirty German. I'm, I was sitting there yelling, let's get muddy. And uh, <laughs> half the people were probably looking at me like I was nuts, but you know, you got to find a way to, to, you know, look for some joy in the process. And um, that's probably one of the, one of the best similarities for me with the job. I love, I love my job. I'm extremely passionate about orthopedics and what we do for patients, um, you know, being at my level now, I get to kind of pick my travel too. So yeah. um, good example is I had my team offsite for a strategy session uh, last week. And so I picked Crested Butte, Colorado because, well, there's a, there's a variety of reasons why I picked it there, but uh, got in some outdoor adventure with the team while, uh, while we're getting some work in as well. That's very cool. Do you find a sensitivity though? Because you know what running brings to you. Running provide something to you other than a than a uh you know an exercise outlet a way to burn calories it it has brought you to a community that has 
has has made you whole again that has given you the things that you were missing before and i know that the medical profession and especially you know some surgeons and when it comes to joints and what have you can can be anti-running and can be like a you'll never run again because they may not understand what running means to someone do do you understand that i mean you understand that sensitivity does has that played for you as well? Like, Hey guys, like this is this, I, I, I can tell you from being involved, this is not telling someone they can't run anymore is, is not, is not, it's not going to win you any, any friends. Yeah. It's funny that you say it that way, Ryan. I remember, um, early in my career, the devices that I sold were sports medicine devices. And in mm-hmm. the orthopedic industry, that means, you know, anchors for, you know, shoulder reconstruction, uh, another time I can tell you the story of uh, my last shoulder surgery where I signed in instruments for my own surgery <laughs> and dropped off implants for my own surgery and made commission on my own surgery. Um, but uh, I remember, um, you know, surgeons, you know, at that point in my career talking to them and they're, you know, I remember one specifically saying the human body was not meant to run marathons. And at the time, you know, I was, you know, 24 or whatever, and I was like, yeah, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe he knows a lot more than I do. And obviously now I would completely disagree with that statement. I would say the human body is capable of running far more than marathons, depending on how you train and prepare. Right. Um, and there's a lot that goes into that. But, um, um, you know, the limits of the human body, when you think about it within that context, um, you know, quite frankly, I think about like what will be people be doing in 50 years when the gear is even that much better and they're applying the learning from prior generations and doing you know, Cocodona is going to be like the short course, you know, in 50 years. Right. (laughs) Right. So uh, I think that part's exciting, but um, you know, every, every, there are so many differences in the surgeon community where um, there's plenty of them that run, you know, marathons and do a lot of that stuff as well. So, you know, for me, in terms of social circles, you you gravitate towards one side and maybe not as much the other side. It is interesting because you you think about somebody who sees, People day in and day out that have messed up their body due to some imbalance, some training issue, something, you know, for whatever reason, I would I, I would say, yeah, it makes sense that they would think the human body's not meant to run marathons. But it it's one of the things where, especially when it comes to ultras, it's almost more of a spirit and soul filling task than it is a body challenging task, if that makes any sense. Yeah, 1000%. Um, you know, I can tell you, you know, leading up to the Dirty German recently, which was my longest race. And I, by the way, I'm probably the least accomplished runner you've had on the pop podcast. Well, no, no, well, hang I, on, I, hang on. Just so you know, Brian, uh, it says right in the beginning of the podcast, uh, front, middle, back of the pack, everybody. We're not, you know, we have Harvey Lewis on, you know, I've had Anton Kaprichka on, you know, but I, I think every runner has a story. And I think, Everybody's got no, some awesome. value to the to the to the community, and honestly, sometimes you get big names and they give you one word answers. So I'm always just looking for a great story. <laughs> you got a great story, Brian. You nearly died jumping your motorcycle over a over a cliff. No, I think, no, you're 100 percent right there, Ryan. But back to your point about you know the spiritual aspect of it. You know, towing the dirty German. It's my first 50 miler. Um, I did the Savage Golf Marathon uh, in March, as you know, which was one heck of an adventure. Um, and I learned a lot from it that I took into the 50 miler, yeah. uh, working with my coach. And I remember standing on the start line and, and just to frame it, the weather's terrible. It rained nonstop the day prior. It was still raining nonstop day of the race. And so, um, when you started the, the race was three loops for the 50 miler. So whatever that is, it was like 17 miles yeah. and change or whatever it was. Um, the first loop was muddy. The third loop was like mid calf deep mud and slop. And so, I mean, like, you know, just in terms of like brutal conditions and, you know, um, I remember like, I, I love these Solomon shoes that I wear, but they have that speed lace system, which, you know, when you get a massive rock in your shoe and you can't even see your shoes cause they're covered in mud, trying to get that speed lace system to work so you can get the rock out of your shoe. Like so many things could have gone wrong. And, um, I ended up having like one of the, the, by far the best ultra I've ever had was that day. Um, I hit my gold uh, goal in terms of time of 10 hours. And um, I remember the feeling coming across 
uh, the finish line, I was just so fired up, even though I just spent 10 hours on my feet in the rain and in the mud, I was, I was beside myself with just joy. It fulfills, it fulfills something deep inside us. I think, you know, a lot of guests have talked about, and we've mentioned before in the podcast, like I think there's, there, there's a deep human need for suffering and tough things. And I think, you know, our, our parents' generation, Brian, because we're about the same age, they did experience some hardships. You know, they did have hard times. And I think we're living in some pretty, pretty good times. I, I've had a really wonderful life and a really wonderful upbringing. And, you know, what do I do for a living? I program radio stations. That means I sit on a, uh, I sit in my office and I, I move songs around. You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, putting roofs uh, on houses in 90 degree weather. And so I don't, yeah. I don't have those. I, I don't have hardness in my life, and so I, I think ultra running must be one of those things that fills that need. Yeah, for sure. And for me, like motocross gave me that. I like the way that you articulated that, Ryan. Like hardness in your life, like things that are really challenging that can beat you down at times, and you know you really have to pick yourself up, not just physically but mentally mm-hmm. as well. Um, I've always been a big believer in the mental side of even in just my professional life. Um, you know, the, the, the mindset side, um, is critically important and, and with ultra running, I mean, you can be the fastest runner on the course, but if if you don't have your head screwed on and you don't have the right frame of mind, when the gun goes off, you know, the chances of you having a bad day are are very strong in ultra. And if you don't have that mindset, you're likely just going to DNF every time you encounter a challenge. And so um, that's what I loved about it. it. It's you against the course. Obviously, there's other there's other people out there, but um, just doing things you never thought you'd be able to do otherwise. It, it's a feeling like like none other that I've that I've ever uh, you know experienced. And I can tell you, you know, promotions, whatever. Uh, that finish go running across the dirty German outside of my children being born. That that's. That's up there. So I won't um, mention that you didn't mention your wedding to your wife. I I, I won't we'll leave that out. She can she can hear us, Brian. She'll remind <laughs> me in a minute. We do have our ten year anniversary later this fall too. So I got I got to get my act together. Don't fuck this up, Brian. Don't you got <laughs> pressures pressures on. Don't be like Cole right. Crosby, who I had on, whose wife got him the Coca Dona entry for christmas it was like 14 yeah bucks. I, I remember that one right. and he got her socks like here's your yeah. pair of 20 dollar socks baby uh, that's right but you know, in, in those in those finish line moments are great and and there's really nothing that can compare with that awesome you've struggled you, you get to that finish line you get to have that celebration now but there's also moments and tell me brian if, if you've had these there's those moments either it's in a training run or or it's during a race where Every you get this state of euphoria, this state of Zen where every step is effortless, every breath is effortless, your mind is not thinking about where's the next aid station, where's well, you I gotta do this when I get home. I wonder what my kids are doing. There's this blank nothingness in your mind, and you are just in this present moment of step, step step and sometimes it lasts for a, a couple of seconds sometimes it's 15 minutes to an hour of just this blissful state of almost non-being this connection to nature have you had have you had those moments brian yeah 100 percent. i mean as you're saying this ryan i'm remembering you know last summer um for the last two years prior to me joining this organization in florida i worked uh for another company underneath the same parent company just another operating company that was based out in Salt Lake city. So I'd be out there two weeks out of the month. And of course I would, I would stay in like park city. And if I was there, I was going to go run in the mountains in the evenings. And so I was working during the day and running trails in park city in the evening. And, um, you know, there'd be times I'm just like yelling and hollering going down the trail just because I'm having so much fun. Mm -hmm. You know, you pass somebody hiking, they probably think I'm completely (laughs) nuts, but you know, it's, uh, it's, you feel like a kid again. And, um, you know, you're getting exercise, you're getting that runner's high part of it, but you're also just in nature looking at, you know, beautiful scenery and, um, and there's just, you know, no better place to be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing once you get to experience it, you know, and then it just keeps you coming, coming back for more. Brian Carlisle, this was a heck of a chat. I think you sold yourself short. 
You may not have the big ultra sign-up resume, but this was one heck of a chat. What are you looking forward to as you continue to grow in this sport? What is your next big goal? You know, so my my biggest goal this year is I'm signed up for Grindstone in uh, September, and uh, my my I've got an eight, I've got a gold, a silver, and a bronze goal for for Grindstone. And with, without getting too deep in the weeds, the goal is finish Grindstone, <laughs> get across the finish line. There is a 38 hour cutoff, so I could walk to the finish. Um, but um, yeah, I just want to keep growing and progressing in the sport, and. Um, you know, I've in just the last, you know, two years. Um, and, and by the way, working with a coach has been um, a monumental help for me in terms of figuring out things from people that already know the right way to do it rather than running 10 races and failing and having issues and try and learning it on your own. There's nothing wrong with doing it that way. I was just able to accelerate that by getting a coach. Who's your coach, um, Brian? Uh, Carl Meltzer is my okay. coach. You're the second yeah. person I know that has the speed goat as a coach. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, is, is the first one, John Harden? Yeah. 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 So you know where he is uh, tomorrow, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But when we're yeah. recording this, John Harden's going to start his FKT attempt on the Appalachian Trail. So, yeah, I, um, I, w- I had a call with Carl this afternoon and, and he reminded me of that. Um, so I told him I was going to be on with you this afternoon. And, and anyways, we, we got sidetracked for a little bit, but that went into a 20 minute discussion about the Appalachian trail. That's so Appalachian trail. Can you, can me. you, can you, okay. Cause people will say like, you say it wrong. Uh, a friend of mine from Virginia who grew up in a holler. I mean, he had a, he had a holler named after his family. He was, he told me about that name and how the people from that region that's how they've always said it. And it was, it, it, they, they consider Appalachian like a Yankee bastardization of, of their native land. And so he got very upset when you would say Appalachian. And so I always promise, I'm like, dude, I promise you, I will always say as, as, as a nod to you and your family and your, and your forefathers and the people of that region, that hardy beautiful region in the United States. I will always say Appalachian. So Brian, I'm, I'm, I'm tasking you up in Jersey. They're going to look at you crazy, but I'm just going to task you to say Appalachian while you're up there. You got it. You can count on me, Ryan. I, <laughs> see, I, I did just catch myself too. Cause I listened to that, your podcast as well. When you had the whole discussion of Appalachian versus Appalachia. Yeah. Uh, which was great. You explained it perfectly. And so uh, I'm committed to the Appalachian pathway, but, uh, um, yeah, so there's um, even shirts, by the way, that say Appa Latch uh, on it, <laughs> which I love. Start selling them, yeah. Um, the uh, uh, we, we digress. Where where were we going? So about John, uh, John Harden, right? John Harden starting his his quest, and yeah, you you both have Carl Meltzer. So you got your coach, Carl Meltzer, and and how using the experience of the Speed Goat has kind of helped you progress. What is and I don't want to I don't want to shortchange Carl Meltzer's fee like i don't want you giving away all of carl's secrets i know a lot of them but what was one thing that you've learned from carl that has really been beneficial to your your ultra running yeah i mean there's been so many little things i mean the the biggest thing uh, my last race of last year i did successfully without any stomach issues that was like my biggest you know win from 2021 was to finish a marathon distance without having stomach issues. Um, I did that three weeks after my first ultra. So probably not very smart race choices and timing for me, Yeah, but um, that was one thing with Carl early on. I really wanted to nail the nutrition and between the Savage Gulf marathon and the dirty German, I did not have any nutrition issues whatsoever. I'm sure it's going to happen again in the future, but you know, and, and I've heard this in other podcasts, but it doesn't resonate as, as deeply until you actually get on a call and have a dialogue with somebody about, you know, the, the concept of an IV drip of food and water, just constantly uh, drinking and eating throughout the day. And so for me, my, what I do now is I just, I drink water as I go. I don't really have to think about that, but um, I make it a point to consume about a hundred calories of either a gel or solid food every 20 minutes. And usually after about the three hour mark of a race, you kind of lose track of that. So you're just kind of you know, eating. I've also learned to switch between solid food and gels because my stomach can only tolerate so many gels. That's um, the truth. And the other, the one big thing that he um, helped me understand as well is 
in terms of conserving your mental energy, um, like a lot of runners, I would have like, you know, depending on the race, you've got your chest flask, maybe there's a bladder, one has water, one has you can or something like that. And by like, you know, by 20 miles into the race, you're, you're like, you don't remember what's in where. And, and like, it's, it's too much to keep track of. And the thing I love about Carl is he keeps it simple and, you know, he's like, drink water, just drink water and find an electrolyte, you know, supplement that works for you, which I finally did. Uh, the first one I tried did not work, but I found this one brand of S caps that has a little bit of caffeine and a buffer for digestion. And, and these things are like gold, Ryan. So yeah. I, I swallow one of these every hour and all I drink is water. And like, for me, like all I have to think about at aid stations is refill my water and eat, eat some free food and then get on the way. And so it's just so much easier for me mentally, you know, in preparing and also going throughout the race. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that he's helped me with. That's been uh, really powerful. And then I'd say second to that is the concept of how to build up uh, a base um, my fitness has improved dramatically just since January working with him simply because of the program he put together. It's um, you don't have to run 50 mile distances throughout each week to, to do it. Like, like you talk about in a lot of your podcasts, uh, my average week on a high week, I get to like the high thirties, but um, uh, which is probably about the sweet spot for me, maybe getting into the mid forties yeah. as I ramp up for grindstone. But um, that's just works for me and my body and, you know, the time I need for family and work and stuff like that. Um, he's really been able to help me fine tune the plan that works for me so I can build my base and, and do these uh, events uh, effectively. Yeah. I'm, I'm always interested to see people that, and Carl's one of them who talks about, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll top out at 70 miles. You think about, and I people will email me when I make this point, but I tend to be a homer and Carl always answers my calls. So you've got the greatest hundred mile runner, possibly of all time he's in that discussion right everyone yeah, if you're talking about the greatest 100 mile runners you're mentioning carl Meltzer. if you're not i don't know if we're having the same conversation so to have a guy like that be like yeah 75 miles that's that you know and you and you see these guys that were doing 200 or 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 whatever and so yeah he, i think he's he's definitely he's, he's tuned into something because he's been able to do it so well for so long and he really couldn't have picked a better coach he's a good guy yeah I was, th I mean, I'm glad I did it. I think I did it mostly out of fear. Like I signed up for grindstone, like last October, you know, and like anybody, when you sign up for something like that, I probably had like way too many beers one night. And I was literally like the 10th <laughs> person to sign up for grindstone. And I'm like, I, we, first of all, I should have picked a bread and butter hundred mile to do for the first time. Right. Um, but it was after signing up and I'd signed up for, you know, all these races this year. And I'm like, I have not picked any like easy races so I'm like, it might be worth it to at least find out what the coaching process is like. And so I emailed him and he, he gave me his form and walked me through it. I'm like, well, th this sounds amazing. Let's do it. And uh, um, yeah, so I, we've been doing it since uh, the end of uh, January. And it's it's been awesome. I mean, even, even just like thinking about your training plan every week, that takes like mental energy, not having to do that, but then also having the faith that you've got a great plan from somebody that knows what they're doing. So you're not constantly second guessing yourself. Right. It's, it's made it so much easier to kind of progress throughout the year. Brian, good stuff. I hope to see you out on the trails. Are you going to come back to Savage golf next year? Um, I don't know if I'll come back next year. I will say this. We had such a great time. Um, that's a race I would love to do again. I will say the next time I do it, I will take more pictures and videos because I was so focused, like all my time and everything like that. Um, I didn't get to take in the natural beauty of that race, which is probably one of the most beautiful landscapes I've ever, ever run in. But yeah, it's definitely high on the list. And I highly recommend it to anybody that uh, likes running in the Southeast. Okay. So you have two goals next time you come, uh, take more pictures and take a shit in, in Stafford's camper. Yeah. And we actually didn't we did not have any PBRs or butt heavies. Dang it. Yeah. You were gone when I finished. Right? Oh. I'm like, Where's They're like, he had to work, and I'm like, did Jeff not give you one? Did Jeff not offer you one? Oh, I got well, if you remember, it was kind of cold and rainy, yeah. and so like our wives were there at the finish, and like I'm, I'm I kid you not, Ryan. Like ten minutes later, they're like, we're going back to the cabin. So, <laughs> I think uh, uh, myself and Justin and Steve, ironically, so my my buddy Steve ran it uh, as well. He did the half marathon with you. He finished right behind you. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Like, like two minutes behind you. Yeah, that's, Steve's that's, a great guy. 
That's awesome. Good stuff. Brian, thank you so much for joining us on the Adventure Jogger. Great uh, taking some time to share your story. Um, And again, I hope to see you out on the trail somewhere. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Appreciate the time. Adventurejogger.com. You can check out back episodes. You can even join the Adventure Jogger race team. Get your own jersey there right now. We are 100% listener supported. You can make a monthly pledge on our Patreon page. Just search the Adventure Jogger on Patreon or go to theadventurejogger.com. Join the community on Facebook and Instagram by searching The Adventure Jogger. And subscribe to The Adventure Jogger wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Bye, bye.